name is Eric Jacobson. Welcome to the Critical Teaching and Learning Forum podcast. The Critical Teaching and Learning Forum started out as a group of educators in New Jersey who came together once a month to have an open discussion about teaching from a left perspective in a variety of contexts, including middle school, high school, college, and adult education. The forum now has a website that features articles, resources, and news of upcoming events, and we encourage you to check it out. Today's guest on the podcast is Maricel Santos, an adult educator, researcher, and professor with extensive experience in the field of health literacy. During the episode, we discuss moving beyond decontextualized approaches to health literacy and towards education that is grounded in the lived experiences of patients. Maricel is particularly concerned with issues of communicative justice, and she centers her analysis on the interpretive burden that is put on some patients, particularly those from immigrant communities. This approach highlights the links between adult education, health literacy, and social justice. Thanks, Marcel, for joining me on today on the Critical Teaching and Learning Forum podcast. Um, so before we jump into some of the specific activities that you've been involved in, in community-based adult literacy, adult education, health literacy, and kind of the intersection mm-hmm. between all of those, how did you get into adult ed and adult literacy? This is not a field that everybody knows about, everybody considers, like, you know, I just kind of joke around about it when you ask fifth graders or eighth graders what they want to be when they grow up. Very unlikely that someone's going to say, I want to be an adult educator when they grow up. So how is it that you became an adult educator? Well, in some ways, my pathway might sound very traditional. In some ways, like you're saying, I'm sort of surprised about the many different directions I could have um, taken but this is the path I've chosen, and I love it. Um, but I can now, looking back, I could be in information science right now. I could be a data scientist right now. I could be working in public health. I could be a librarian. I could be an adult educator, and I could have the job I currently have. Um, I, I feel so confident that I could be very happy professionally in any of those domains. So how did I get to that point? Um, you know, I, when I graduated from college, I loved reading. Um, I didn't really want, the, you know, the teaching per se was not what I was the the career to choose. I just wanted to be around other people who loved talking about stuff they read and, and um, wanted to interpret. Um, and so that, you know, when I went to college concert I thought well you know an English teacher sounds like a a, in our society that's a great place to put you um and you know 30 years later 40 years later had I had that same conversation with a career counselor I think there might have been more options on the table but for whatever it was in the early 90s that was the path and I ended up um going to Japan to be a high school teacher uh the JET program the Japan exchange teaching program was fairly new um, I had studied languages in college. So I think the stars just aligned in my college counselor's eyes. So she said, go try this for a few years. And, um, it was hard. It was hard because it felt like no one loved the in- active interpretation as much as I did. <laughs> you know, like I, I would get excited about song lyrics and let's look at the use of grammar in El Condor Pasa. <laughs> you know, why were people more excited to do this? And I, I just felt like I had so many missteps with my high school students. And um, I tell my own students my breakthrough day was the day I created a grammar activity 
and completely structured it around um, a sumo tournament. So every question you got right, you moved up in the uh, Yokozuna rankings. It was a game changer. I was like, why didn't I figure this out before? I just needed to give them a context with which to experience curiosity, motivation, using language um, for a purpose that felt meaningful to you. And, you know, frankly, learning the past tense versus the present tense wasn't it, although I felt like I could have um, talked about language in that way and and enjoyed it. So it was that was a very humbling experience. The other one, because you're a baseball fan, was to put them on Japanese baseball teams and um, have them duke out grammar rules that way as well. That was also a very highly motivating situation. These are, of course, these were freshmen in high school. I mean, I was barely out of my, out of college. I wasn't even that much older than them. So it was a real growth process for me as a young adult, um, kind of stepping away from the intellectualism of my my love of reading and saying, you know what, learning has to be about what people get out of reading, not what the teacher is excited about when it comes to reading. And that really drove me, um, inspired why I went and got my master's. I thought, I really need to understand, like, what is reading? (laughs) What motivates reading? And um, it was in my master's where I developed a whole new vocabulary around literacy theory, not reading comprehension. Literacy in all of its forms of um, literacy as identity, literacy as participation, literacy as um, a vast array of practices that bring texture to your life. I mean, it just was just a complete exposure to a whole um, history of thinking about relationships to text on the page or just information in the world. Um, And I felt when I went and kept teaching after that, I got my master's, ended up teaching again in Japan. My identity was a reading, writing teacher, you know, getting people to connect to who they were as a reader and a writer, what motivates them um, to read and write, uh, It's interesting, earlier you talked about, you know, Batman as an allegory for childhood trauma and how those um, experiences never leave uh, us. Um, One of the books I chose was a modern retelling of Othello. And um, it was was part of a, a, a reader about love and relationships of all forms and kinds and directions. Um, but it was, it was fascinating to the way they, they read Shakespeare differently, um, through that those allegories are all around us. Um, and you, you're part of constructing the significance of why that allegory is so enduring. Um, and you know, this is the mid nineties where I was nervous about, race relations, which is a huge uh, motif in Othello. I was nervous about bringing up discussions. I didn't feel equipped. I didn't feel trained. Um, And just a little bit more fast forward, I think that's the reason why I went and got a doctorate. I thought, man, we really need to understand um, the 
life experiences that make you a reader. And, and so I, I just felt like each time I went back to school, I was getting more foundational in my curiosity about what reading was, what literacy is, who are readers. Um, a, perhaps a more relevant question is, how does the world of school shape expectations for what reading looks like? And what are we missing out on by not looking at reading in the real world? Um, I can say more about how that's a backdrop for my interest in health literacy. Um, I know we'll come back to that, but yeah. that that's that's sort of um, how my, the through line is. I felt like I under I deserve to know more about my learner with each passing career phase, <laughs> whereas in the beginning I was it was like, uh, isn't reading great? <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think. And, yeah. And the question now is like, for whom is reading great? <laughs> for whom is writing great? And why? I think, I think a lot of people are in your same boat, right? That end up in literacy studies that they, they enjoy the active interpretation. They enjoy the kind of the reflection on the process of interpretation, right? So, uh, I mean, I didn't end up getting a doctorate with the intention of becoming a professor, right? It was just like the next question, right? I had another question and I wanted to pursue it, right? And so then so then that was, I thought, the best way to pursue it. But I think in some ways, um, adult education and adult literacy helps us get at some of those questions that you were asking in terms of like, what does it mean to be a reader? What is a reader's identity? Because it's associated with not reading. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think with with K-12 often, I don't think that people necessarily ask these deeper questions about sort of the ontological aspects of reading or the existential aspects of reading, because it's taken for granted that everybody's a reader. Um, and then people don't ask those questions about how reading functions in society because everybody's just reading. Right. That's problematic. Right. Because K-12 needs to be examined, I think, in a little bit deeper ways. But but my guess would be a lot of people like yourself, like myself, who end up thinking about adult education and adult literacy start to ask some of these questions because we look around and see like, oh, we can't take these things for granted. Right. There are some people who are reading text. There are some people who aren't reading text or not reading text in the same way. And so then that that causes us to kind of like ask what the next question is like i I didn't really think about this until right now that i'd asked you on to think about the connection between adult literacy and and health literacy but actually my own path to adult literacy is through health literacy so i had worked at a couple of international aids conferences again back in the 90s um, and i was really interested in getting an mph because i wanted to like do community-based health education. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. And so then, but one day I was chopping wood. This sounds apocryphal. I was literally like chopping wood. I was Southeastern Massachusetts and I was literally chopping some wood. I'm making some firewood. And so as I was making the firewood, I, w- I started to think like, well, how do you do public health outreach with somebody that can't read? I said, all right, so I need to figure out how you help people to read first before I can then do health outreach with them and so then I went to get my master's in language and literacy and it was in a course on reading comprehension that I was like nana this is this is this is it like I love the fact that we're sitting around talking about reading comprehension and then sort of my trajectory was set at that point 
Um, you know, and I still care about things like health literacy, but, but I thought I was going to go back right away. I was going to get my master's in language literacy, figure out literacy as if you could figure out literacy in one year, right. And then go on to, to public health. Right. But, but you can't, right. Because there's always a next question about, about literacy. So, so for you then, as you're sort of making this, and so, as you say, sort of retrospect, possibly inevitable journey towards adult ed. Um, when did the health literacy part sort of come to prominence for you? Yeah, I mean, I didn't have a, a wood chopping moment, but um, I had a perhaps a, a wood chopping uh, interaction that lasted about two and a half years with Dr. Rima Rudd at, um, when we were in grad school. Um, and it was because the National Center for the Study of Adult Learning and Literacy enabled us who were interested in adult education and literacy studies to, to find each other that I started thinking about, well, who, who, is, who is recognized as a reader and writer? How do we portray struggling readers and writers? And what, what kind of conversations is that driving in healthcare? Um, that it gave me another platform on which to think about some more foundational things. Whose whose interpretation is um, setting the the model for what successful navigation looks like? Um, as an English teacher, as an ESL teacher, uh, it's easy to see that the often that the in, the language that in which you need to be comprehending and making meaning in is English in our healthcare system. And yet from the learner's perspective, you know, those of us who have tutored adult learners, ear to the ground approaches is you look at what other languages are mediating the learning process. Um, and it, it felt like the more I spent time in public health, that that foundational insight needed more deliberation um, as as we think about what are the ways to intervene? Okay, so we have many people in the United States who are not proficient readers and writers. The answer is not only to teach them English. It, it can't be because the um, we've used the word reading a lot, reading in, in, in healthcare, but we're really talking about making meaning, like just fundamental sense-making, information-seeking, information-gathering, and making use of that information, which is a much broader swath of skills than what we would find underneath a, a list of reading comprehension uh, skills and capacities. So, you know, I would say one wood chopping moment is one day when I was having a conversation with Rima Rudd and we realized that it's important to call attention to the fact that some people use the word corridor when they walk down a corridor, when the rest of us might say there's a hallway and if at the end of the hallway, you'll find the drink machine. Like what is it about our worlds where corridor is the word that gets written, gets institutionalized, gets part of the discourse when you walk into a hospital and yet we all recognize we're in a hallway and so it was on the one hand as an as an applied linguist we're just curious we're just curious about how look at that variation in the way we use language to represent realities and the different frames that those word choices represent 
from a public health inter, uh, or intervention side is that is that variation when does that variation become a problem um, or when does that variation become a barrier to accessing other kinds of information that might be associated with the corridor world versus the hallway world um, and I'm not, I mean, I'm not here to demonize anybody in public health. I think we actually have more shared pain points than anything. We're on, we feet on, you know, feet on the ground. We are usually first point of contact with many people who are trying to access services and information. And the diversity is both an opportunity, but can be overwhelming to us. We both, both of our fields get that. Um, I would love for their to be more opportunities to cross fertilize or to have colleagues in public health join me in adult ed classrooms because we get to talk about we we actually talk about corridor versus hallway in our classrooms um and that can often be both an enlightening understanding. It's not only just fun. I mean, our students love talking about stuff like that. But then you get to ask more important questions. Is do I get more of what I want if I use the word quarter? If do I get closer to a, a productive decision-making point because I understand the discourse communities that are being activated when I try to navigate the healthcare system? The sadder part of the story is that... Um, it's de- it's not demystified. We just we you know we think oh we don't know the word corridor. I don't understand. I got to work harder to understand what people are saying to me. And this is I think the where my work my head is now in my work. I think of who is bearing the the in, the most amount of interpretive burden um, in our healthcare interactions and. That is an idea that I'm inspired um, to to push forward around because of what I've read. Um, Charles Briggs, uh, the sociologist, anthropologist, thinker in uh, sociolinguistics, has helped us understand that there are many violations of communicative justice every day in our healthcare system because, you know, not to beat the corridor versus hallway example, but because corridor is the presumed is the presumed expectation figure out corridor um learn to read corridor learn to navigate corridors as they're set up versus um what are other ways of making sense of the world and is there other ways of inviting active interpretation um because we all know what a corridor is right uh, yeah. I mean, I think at a, at a basic level, um, the underlying problem with the model, right, is that it's based around access, right? So that uh, that if you have the language, if you have the kind of the discourse markers, then you are provided access to the healthcare. You're provided access to, you know, the education that you want, uh, but. At a, at a deep level, what does that suggest? That suggests the sort of innate separation, right? So that the one group of people or, or information or resources is here, and then you are outside of that set, 
right? And so that you need access to it as opposed to, you know, you have a right as a human being to share in those resources equally, right? And so you shouldn't have to argue or prove your worth to, to access those, those resources, right? And so, you know, so language can be one way of throwing up those barriers, right? Uh, you know, socioeconomic status, you know, gender, sexuality, all these things that we set up as barriers, right? But in some ways, they reinforce this idea that one needs to access something, right? And so then if we didn't have that framework, then we wouldn't have to worry about whatever the latest manifestation of the gate is, right? Like, if it's always going to be about access, there's always going to be some new gate, right, that somebody's going to have to pass through to get to that. Right. Yeah. So, um, and I think part of it is that uh, learning corridor and, and hallway, right? Those things aren't mutually exclusive, right? So that like you can learn both and in so doing critique the existence of that word as a, you know, as a gatekeeping device. I think of work that I did at the Haitian Public Health Initiative in, in Mattapan in Boston, one of the projects that I worked on there was a group of Haitian parents who all had children um, that had a variety of special needs, right? So some autism, epilepsy, Down syndrome, a wide variety of things. So I would, I worked on uh, like an ESL class with the parents, you know, on the English that they wanted so that they could go to the state house in Boston and argue for resources for their community, Right. So in part, that was learning corridor. Right. That was like, I'm going to go and I'm going to argue in terms that you state representative are going to understand in terms of equity. At the same time, I also worked with those parents to create a video in Creole directed towards other Haitian parents in the community who had stigmatized perspectives on disability. Right. That it was associated with karma, with curses, with, you know, uh, Hmm. inherited guilt and all that sort of stuff right and so the parents in that position were able to to switch the register right so that when i'm at the state house here's the language that i need you know to talk to these representatives when i'm talking to other haitian parents here's the language that i need to convince them of my perspective right so in from their perspective from their position, from their sort of positionality, they're able to understand both of those as neither objectively sort of correct language, right? But like situationally demanded language, right? And that, and then they're, they're able to evaluate how language itself works, right? And that code switching itself works, right? And I think, I think it doesn't have to be this like either or when we're thinking about like the language that we want to talk about when it comes to health or when it comes to talk about like, you know, education resources. And yeah, I mean, let's be clear. I I don't think neither one of us is saying, you know, we shouldn't be actively striving towards cutting away the, um, the fluff, right? Like if, if, there are other ways, you know, there's, you can learn the word corridor, you can learn the hallway. I could just physically point and show it to you. And if, if you need to get to an office at the end of the hallway, like I'm not going to sit you down for a lesson on corridor versus hallway, just so you can walk down the hallway. I mean, that's just kind of a silly example, but the practical realities of getting stuff done in healthcare are forcing some decisions about what we invest 
time and education and learning. And this is where I feel like the interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary conversation between adult ed and public health actually opens up more opportunities for thinking about who, who can support that learning process, to be just in time about it, figure out when is the best time and what are the best ways to integrate the, the opportunities for learning as opposed to, you know, I, I have a doctor's appointment, you know, you're not going to teach me in that moment. We have, we have our roles, we have our, our choice moments, but are we, are we spending more time learning about the adult ed context in order to figure out what's a, what are some underutilized um, opportunities? And you and I know, I mean, we're surrounded by people who know that there is just vast underinvestment in the kind of learning and growth opportunities we have in adult ed. That pains me that on the one hand, you know, we've we've made great strides with the plain language movement, with improving access to language services. Um, And yet, are we are we keeping the classroom in the toolbox as well? I I, I don't know. I think I'm not I'm not demonizing anybody. I'm just asking. We we keep leaving one tool underappreciated, um, underutilized, um, and they come to us. Right. <laughs> they, they come like you just described a population of Mattapan where they come to you and can bring their questions. Um, again, uh, you know, just for your listeners who are listening, for like, what's the practical realities here? If you're an ESL teacher. And you think about the kinds of questions I'm teaching my students to practice, uh, the kinds of request structures when they want to get stuff done, um, allowing yourself to see that the patience that you give that lesson matters in somebody's health literacy. It matters. I can't right today draw you a direct empirical line to that, but I could find you lots of studies that show how there's an indirect pathway that the more opportunities you give adults to language through the things they care about will matter when they are suffering from pain and have to rely on some instincts or some other resources to be able to get information they need to um, make some healthcare decisions. We know um, from watching very uh, beginning level learners how much the social component is. They don't go. They don't learn the alphabet alone. They don't learn to read alone. There's they're surrounded by people who are helping them get stuff done on a daily basis. We revel in that. We 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 celebrate it. We we you know we have potlucks so that they can bring the family unit to the classroom so we can see who was part of uh, that learning journey. And yet, sometimes when we talk about health literacy, we're, we, we so easily slip back into these very individual, individually uh, measured um, views on health literacy. It, it is changing. I, I've been reading lately um, some studies on different refugee groups in the U.S. And there was this one particular study, I'll send you the link and you can post it later, um, that looked at what happens when you bring a patient into a clinic, sit them down at an iPad to navigate a patient portal, and you invite them to bring a more proficient other, somebody they trust. Um, How much farther do they get in the app? (laughs) How How much more reliably are you able to get information from them? I mean, 
you can predict the outcome here. Right. <laughs> we, we go farther when we have social supports around us. We go farther in our learning. Vygotsky predicted that years ago. <laughs> right. And our classrooms are designed based on that principle um, in task design. And so that's where I feel the biggest lesson that adult educators could be sharing with public health practitioners is let's look at the social in learning. Let's look at the way you can configure the social in learning. We do it already as a, as a normal course of action. We train our teachers to do this well with task design, group work, cooperative learning, project work. It's all social, social, social. Yeah. And I think as part of it too is if we're invested in the idea of a generative curriculum, Right, as you said, our students are going to have certain questions that like, will be at the heart of a generative curriculum, but a given student may not be able to ask it. Right? They, they may have a question, they may have a concern, and not only may they, they may not have it in a target language, but they may not even have it in you know, uh, any other language, right? because it's just it's this sort of incohate thing in, the, in them, right? But a friend, a family member, a colleague, a fellow community member can recognize the question that they're wrestling with and possibly articulate it for them, right? So that's, I think, another aspect of the social, right? And that the reality of the sort of social cultural context of, of both health literacy and adult literacy, right? So that me as a not Haitian person, right? Or me as a non-Latino, right? I, I, won't I may recognize that a student may be having a hard time articulating what it is that they want to say, or I may not recognize it at all, right? I may not hear that silence, mm-hmm. and I miss I may misread that silence, right? But somebody else who's who can connect with them is connected to them can recognize that silence or that difficulty articulating the question and be like, actually, teacher, what he wants to know is such and such, or what she wants to know is such and such, right? And I think that pertains both in the classroom and also, again, like at the doctor's office, at the clinic, right? Like, you know. Yeah, and yeah, and I, uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I, yeah. I, I was just thinking you're making me remember um, that we shouldn't pretend that those of us who are more proficient in English are able to do it on our own and the people who are less proficient have to rely on social networks in a compensatory way. I mean, that is just completely a delusion of, um, of the, the ways we normatively go about getting most of our life done. Um, I mean, you know, your listeners, us, we can think about when's the last time you had like a, a health situation in your family, what did you do? Like if I asked you to write down the 10 things, 10 steps you took to make a a better decision for your family, I would bet you a lot of money that you probably consulted people and the people you consulted reflect people you trust. Right. And if that's treated as that's what we do, why would we, why would we not activate that? Right. Um, why would we not design interventions that actually take that as a starting point? Whereas, unfortunately, um, the, the prevailing starting point is to worry about whether they can access it in English. Right. Um, and, and that's, again, it's all part of the toolbox, but let's make sure we're using a vast number of tools. One other piece about the social, because 
we're talking about social uh, kind of concretely in terms of relationships. When we say literacy is social practice, we're also talking about in what forms in our society is information come packaged in. So if you think about your, your pandemic experience, how do you know what you know about the pandemic? Is a function of social media, um, what you read in the newspaper, if you read the newspaper, or who you spoke to, or your actually personal experience, you know, the number of times, how, how, how you made decisions about getting vaccinated. And that's, you know, the fancy word for that. It's a very multimodal um, it's a very multimodal experience. It's a, it ends up being a multimodal knowledge base of how we know anything in healthcare, and yet the often the views on on health literacy skews towards: Can you read a prescription label? Can you can you read a brochure? Can you access particular kinds of portals? And all of those are important, but to the I think the challenge for us, even as teachers, when we say we're literacy teachers, is to say, am I teaching in a multimodal way? Am I supporting learning in a multimodal way? Am I assessing the learner's capacity in a multimodal way? And that's why I go back to that great example of the individual, the less proficient with the more proficient nephew at an iPad that it is both a social experience, but it's a multimodal experience. And that's just cool like that if we can just embrace that as a as a foundational reality in our healthcare system i think we're going to broaden the lens on how do we teach what we teach when we say we're teaching health literacy um and to check our assumptions about uh where we invest authority is the authority in the written word or do we give equal weight to authority that is constructed across what you learned from Twitter (laughs) and um, what you heard from your aunt um, about COVID. Um, There's a lot of misinformation out there, but we also should be um, more intentional about saying it's not the print based modality that matters the most. Right. Um, it's, uh, It's often the print based modality in conjunction in a constellation of a broader um, landscape of information forms and modes. Yeah. And, and I think each one of those things is so specific. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I don't particularly like that term digital literacy, because to me it's the functional equivalent of like text literacy or page literacy, right? Like we don't talk about book literacy, Right. Like because reading a play is different than reading, you know, a a coding computer book is different than reading, you know, a car schematic. Right. And if we're thinking about literacies as a as a as not a fixed or sort of uniform thing, then why aren't we applying that understanding to the digital world as well? Right. So there's not a fixed way that we a uniform way that we engage with digital resources, right? Each one of them demands a certain set of literacy practices and certain literacy skills. So working with an iPad at a doctor's office, right, is different than, you know, reading Facebook or, you know, on Twitter. And so to me, describing them as digital literacies doesn't really help us think about the specificities of both the affordances of each one of these devices and some of the demands of working successfully and efficiently with those devices. It's like 
I don't know, it's kind of a hollow term to me, like digital literacy doesn't really mean anything, right? Because it doesn't really tell us anything about what the person's actually doing. Yeah, I mean, I think we are connected to a network of scholars, uh, Vicki Purcell-Gates, Elsa Auerbach, you know, that uh, Stephen Reeder, that, you know, are, all give us uh, a voice to question blank literacy, like fill-in-the-blank literacy, like is that a productive way to go about labeling the phenomena we care about? And I used to worry more about this maybe 10 years ago. I think the ship has sailed. I think well, I lost that fight a long know, time. Yeah, the ship is set, but let's not, um, I think we could be focused on measures um, and the scope of interventions, the, the, the ways we think we're, what's going into the teaching. If we think that fill in the blank, literacy matters. Um, if we broaden the array of competencies that matter, if we broaden the, if we look at more tools in the toolbox, if we are more del- intentional about the kinds of measures that enable us to describe someone's health literacy, uh, then, then the label won't be as damning as uh, maybe we should be worried about. But I hear you. I, I think the problem with the word literacy, it is, is often conflated with intellect and schooling yeah. and, and, you know, those, that's, that's not, that's an age old debate. Right. Um, but it's a persistent ideology, uh, that, that is hard to, to escape. Um, and so the, I think, you know, as practical practice, practice minded uh, educators, I think we, we tend to think of, how the rubber meets the road in our measures, the rubber meets the road in our lesson planning, the rubber meets yeah. the road in the kind of competence we va- competencies we value for these terms that maybe, you know, for all intents and purposes, the label may not really yeah. be the best one. To kind of go back to what we were talking about earlier, who's reading, who's not reading, what does it mean to be a reader? You know, Vicki Purcell Gates at her, when she was leaving LRA and her past president talk, you know, one of the things that she was critiquing, she was saying, like, let's look at the PX survey and the performance of like leaders in the United States around the lead up to the Gulf War, right? Did they read across multiple texts? Did they analyze? Did they use more, like all the things that we hold adult learners to when we're assessing them, right? The ruling class and the oligarchy in the U.S. failed all of those things, right? But mm-hmm. so, uh, but those people aren't assessed in the same way that as someone who's been flagged as an adult learner is assessed, right? Or, you know, somebody who may be from an immigrant community or an otherwise like vulnerable community being thought of as a potential patient or maybe as an always patient, right? But the person that like, you know, has a bag of Doritos and like a Mountain Dew Extreme for lunch and goes back to the goes back to their like office job, right? It's not thought it's the same way as like a Mexican immigrant that's like having a churro, right? Like so but but so who gets labeled, right? Who gets labeled as someone who's in need of health education or health literacy or adult literacy, right? And it's certain populations that get this label, right? It's certain populations that are either flagged, right, or maybe like uh, self-select in, but we can't treat those as you know, as unique experiences or the only people that are in need of, of health literacy or adult literacy. Yeah, you're reminding me of the work of Uju Anya, who's a bilingual researcher that just does some incredible work around um, identity and language. And I recently heard her speak and she said something like, you want my definition of bilingualism? 
tell me who, give me, give me a person, you know, tell me who the person is. And then I'll tell you what definition of bilingualism is at work. And her idea, her, 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 her point is, is that the bilingualism of, of, let's say a fourth grader who's uh, Spanish English living in a home that is dominant Spanish, that bilingualism is appreciated in one way or perhaps evaluated in one way. Whereas a high school kid who's monolingual English all their lives learns Chinese in junior high school or in, and yeah, and it's, then they go on and they major in uh, uh, Chinese language and literature in college. That bilingualism is esteemed in a different way. Right. And so that, the, that inequity of valorization um, could be applied to the same logic here. You want to know what health literacy is? <laughs> tell me who you're talking about. And right. then we'll tell you what, um, you know, the role of language, the role of languaging, the role of questioning, the role of the different languages they know. I'll tell you what definition is being used to shape. It feels like an uphill climb, Eric, right? Like, uh, right, um, that we're going to say the kinds of joy we want students to experience the kinds of affirmation our students, we want our students to experience in these lessons around stories, questioning, sharing of interpretations. It feels like an uphill climb to say, if I invest in that kind of interactional practice, that I can make a difference. I can help these learners make a difference when they go to other clinical settings or to go to clinical settings and have to ask questions about a healthcare, right? It, like, again, I think we've talked about, stuff. how do I draw that map? What is that line? What is the sphere of influence? I think it's there. I think it's there. We have to believe it's there. If we don't believe it's there, then Frary was wrong. <laughs> or if it's not there, then the power of language socialization and the power of, of the role of interaction also seems to be undermined. And we just know that's not true. We know that there's decades of evidence that support the emergentist quality, the emergent quality of tiny interactions make a difference. We don't know the, like we don't know like, oh, after 20 intera- meaningful interactions, suddenly you're a beginning level learner. And then after 20 more interactions, you're a high beginning learner. It doesn't work like that. But it is in the accumulation of interactions that not only do you gain confidence, you gain practice, you gain an understanding of the context in which those skills matter. You get gain a sense of agency. If you are rewarded, if you get what you want, from having successfully navigated, that's, that's got to mean something um, in terms of the transferability of skills. Well, I also think that part of that is like what we're assessing, right? So are, are we assessing uh, English skills, uh, you know, or written and, and, uh, and reading skills, or are we understanding language skills more broadly, right? So like if we think about uh, somebody that's, you're going into a community and talking to them about nutrition, right? Like, oh, you know, here's here's ten things that you can do to improve your nutrition, your family's nutrition, your child's nutrition, right? But they live in a food desert, right? So, so all the things that you're telling them are not relevant to them, right? Because they don't have access to the things that they need to, you know, kind of like act on on this information. 
If you don't have a longer conversation with them, you're not going to get to the fact that they live in a food desert, right? So if you have that first conversation, oh, here's what nutrition means, you know, according to these standards, here's the recommendations. So go forth and be healthy, right? Mm -hmm. Unless that conversation with that person continues on long enough that they can to say to you, yeah, that's all well and good, but there are no apples in my neighborhood. There's no kale in my neighborhood. So what am I supposed to do about that? Right. And then, and then that pushes it back on you as somebody who cares about that community to be like, all right. So in addition to thinking about nutrition, I have to think about like food deserts. Right. And so, so if the result of that interaction is that that adult learner has made a connection to somebody else who's going to potentially help work on the food desert issue, then that's good, right? That's progress. And they've done something with their language, whether it's English, Spanish, translanguaging, however they accomplished it, right? In that interaction, they've gotten potentially another ally to work on the issue of access to nutritious food for them, right? And that's harder to capture, right? But it's also connected to the real longitudinal nature of development. I mean, like, you really can't measure development in short little bursts, right? Like, development occurs over long, long periods of time. And I think if we open ourselves to really think about what the outcomes are that people care about, then we might see those outcomes in ways that we wouldn't capture in a PAC or something else like that, right? That, like, yeah. I mean, listening to you, I, I feel a sense of impatience with ourselves because, I mean, what you're talking about here is just fundamentally at the core of contextualized pedagogy, right? That you have to know, take any skill um, and you've got to locate it somewhere. You have to, to teach it, you have to locate right. it in some sort of context. And now, now you have a choice, like which context do I do I bring in it's like the word problem of a, of a, a math skill or I'm going to teach the past tense what um what context am I going to teach it in and here's the thing the impatience comes in because this is not rocket science like you were talking about a fundamental truth about the way we go about learning anything right that if we don't get a sense of connection to the material it will not stick um, and, and, and we might not even persist in learning more skills because we don't have anything to anchor it into. So what we spend lots of time with our teachers and our teacher training programs is to, what are the tools you have to recognize points of contact? What are the tools you have to be able to recognize that an affordance is emerging, <laughs> emerging for you? This is basically saying that a student's understanding is emerging because they've connected it to something they know, they've experienced and now have a new way to think about it. Like you bring in nutrition, you're looking at the healthy plate. That doesn't look like my grocery store, or that's not even the kind of funds I have to be able to apply it. But then how do I, what adjustments do I make? Um, who gets to be the messenger of that ad adjustment? Do you, you do position a student as, okay, so let's, let's talk about it. Let's go take pictures of, um, you know, what the healthy plate could look like if you had $20 and we went down to the convenience store. There's this um, wonderful group of researchers who came up with this high school curriculum called Local Lotto. Um, it's a team, I think one of the, the lead researchers, Rubel. And to teach math, they had kids 
canvassing their neighborhoods about where lottery tickets are sold, who buys them, who's winning, out of what convenience stores. Um, and the project initially was about let's let's teach contextualized math, right? Let's 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 figure out how these math skills fit into a local neighborhood context. It was the kids who realized. Did you know that marketing to certain racial groups is more um, uh, intense in some areas versus others? And being really bothered by that and wanting to take it. So again, that's aren't those the moments of um, of agency that have some serious consequence for the way that again little drops in the bucket could cause um, some ripples that makes the uphill climb definitely worth it because. You can't relent. Uh, It's it's everyday interactions will accumulate. That is how new practices develop. Um, And I just hope we're all going to get better at trying to create those interactions in a way that the learners are starting to drive the conversation in in that local lotto example or um, in, in the examples that you brought up earlier in Mattapan. I want to thank Maricel again for sharing her time and insights with me today. I encourage you to check out her work and writing. You can find some links at her profile page at San Francisco State University. Stay safe.